I have met with people from the government. Uh, we have met with people from the municipal counties. We have met field men from those counties or others that were against bounties, and yet the bounties are still going on. The bottom line truly is coyotes and wolves do not vote and farmers do. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. A hint of anger or disgust can be heard when conversation turns to wolves and coyotes in some communities, particularly those where managing livestock pays the bills. A long-held belief in many regions of the world, including many parts of Canada, is that eliminating these predators will protect livestock. Though numerous studies show that bounties or culls are ineffective at this, the practice remains in place. Dr. Gilbert Prou of Alpha Wildlife Research and Management, along with Sadie Parr of Wolf Awareness Incorporated, wanted to test some of the beliefs surrounding cattle and wild canids. In their paper, Is Livestock an Important Food Resource for Coyotes and Wolves in Central Eastern Alberta Counties with Predator Control Bounties, the duo tested three hypotheses based on assertions supporting bounties. The results showed simply that cattle isn't an important food resource, and that a bounty made no difference in the amount of cattle consumed by coyotes and wolves. The results also led to the recommendation that the bounties be discontinued. With communities spending tens of thousands of dollars of limited budgets on ineffective bounties, individual animals being killed, and ecosystems being irreparably damaged, this science is more important than ever. Dr. Gilbert Prou joined Defender Radio to discuss the science behind the research some of the factors that led to the belief that predators are killing livestock, and what's necessary to move forward from this outdated model of management. Is livestock an important food resource for coyotes and wolves in central eastern Alberta counties with predator-controlled bounties? This is a subject that comes up to those of us who are involved in, whether it is wildlife management, policy, research, advocacy, etc. It comes up on a near daily basis, I would argue, whether we are talking about coyotes or wolves, two canids, uh, depredating on livestock. And there is a growing body of evidence about that, but the concept of depredation goes unchallenged frequently. And from what I have read of this art, uh, sorry, of the study, the hypotheses that you you worked with are very much directly challenging this. So how did you decide? Uh, it was you and Sadie Parr, of course, uh, who's a, a, a lovely individual and advocate and researcher. How did you decide these are two hypotheses that need to be tested? I, I think that uh, um, your introduction there uh, answers the question. You, you see, like, you have indicated that in spite of everything, um, the uh, the the, um, the control or let's say the killing of the wolves and the coyotes uh, still goes on, and uh, it just shows that um, um, scientific evidence is not always the only um, marble that is being used here by uh, politicians to make their decisions. There is a lot of um, 
lobbyists and a lot of uh, personal agendas coming into the picture. So we did not want to come up with, uh, let's say, wishy-washy objectives. We're going to see what they eat and we'll see what happens and so on. You know, We wanted to be clear that this study was uh, firmly directed towards the assessment of the relationship between these wild carnivores and uh, the cattle industry, in particular in Alberta. And uh, uh, it was important to be that exact, I feel, because there is other uh, researchers in Alberta who directed their interests along the Rocky Mountain uh, house area, on the south of the Rocky Mountain house area, and they claimed that wolves was uh, the worst uh, livestock uh, predator in Alberta. Uh, without specifying maybe that um, this uh, ranch that was an issue was a particular issue where there was not basic husbandry being applied. So uh, when you look at the distribution of complaints across Alberta, uh, you see that there's not that many um, complaints or at least uh, proven uh, facts uh, for most of Alberta. So we wanted to be very, very clear that uh, nobody can say, oh, was it really what they were looking for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've left no argument. I mean, the, the two hypotheses are that, uh, hypothesis one, cattle remains in coyote and wolf scats, the wolf scats would be relatively more frequent in spring, uh, specifically April, and hypothesis two, that they would be relatively less frequent in summer. Uh, and I think your hypotheses, well, your tests proved that these hypotheses are not true. You disproved the hypotheses. Uh, yeah, to our to our surprise, yes. And, uh, you know, like we're talking of people who work for the Alberta Agriculture and uh, Wildlife Office, Offices for uh, decades, you know, and uh, they always says, well, in Alberta, the predation is higher in the spring, it's less in the summer. Uh, and in the Rockies, in the fall, it may increase again uh, because wolves like their prey a bit bigger than a, a, a newborn calf. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, we uh, we said, okay, well, let's let's test what you're claiming, you know. And uh, we have shown that uh, actually. <laughs> The, the first year of our study, we can go into the results so after in more detail, but the first year of our study, we had little predation in the spring, not predation, little presence of cattle in the food habits of the coyotes and the wolves. And there was more in the summer, which should have been the reverse, according to our uh, government agencies. And in 2017, it was the same both in spring and summer, and it was very little. I'm going to pause before we go into those details because you caught yourself doing something that I do too. All of us do. And it was the difference between depredation and having remains. And it's a very subtle difference that has a very large implication. How important is, and throughout your paper, you do an excellent job of being clear that you're talking about remains. How important to you as a researcher is it to distinguish that remains do not mean depredation? Well, uh, you you see, like, um, um, depredation involves 
an act from the carnivore, in this case the coyote or the wolf, to attack and kill uh, a calf or a cow or uh, or, or uh, um, let's say a, a sheep, you know, in other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's really a, a relationship of animal uh, killing another animal for feeding. And what we 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 have found out is that uh, uh, coyotes and wolves feed a lot on dead animals, and in this case, uh, uh, the archaeocarcasses left in the field. And when you have a wolf or a coyote feeding on a dead cow, the uh, remains in the scats of these animals uh, will make some people j- conclude that these cows had been killed by the wolf or the coyote. And this is where it becomes tricky, the old thing. You have to try to identify why are these canids, uh, uh, why are they uh, with uh, some cattle remains in their scats? And we have to, to, to try to, uh, to play detective here and see where they come from, those cats, which we did. Um, in an ideal world, you will have all your wolves and your coyotes uh, red colored. You will follow them and you will see where the cows are and you will know what is the exact uh, uh, action that is happening there. But th- this study, like many of those uh, uh, contrary-minded uh, investigations, had very, very little funding and uh, we had to, to go with uh, a different approach. But it's really important that people recognize that if they see a coyote or a wolf feeding on a dead animal in the field, this does not imply that that coyote or the wolf killed this animal. The uh, animals are attracted by the smell of dead animals. Uh, In the case of cattle, they are attracted in the spring by the uh, uh, leftover of uh, the birthing process, you know. And also they are even attracted by the... uh, the poop of uh, the the young calves, which are uh, uh, for them a, a source of energy, you know. So uh, we we have encountered uh, people that, uh, in other counties where they were adamant that the coyote had killed a cow, which is a uh, quite a, a big work uh, to do for a, a coyote alone. Okay. You know? And uh, and. Uh, um, we, we, uh, he says, I know I drove into the field, I saw the coyote on the, on the animal. Well, that animal probably died of other causes, and the coyote took advantage of a free lunch on the way, you know. And a lot of uh, coyotes and wolves won't even come close to that because they know better. So mm-hmm. people have to do a distinction between predation and feeding. It's two different things, yeah. Uh, and we know that people don't like jumping to conclusions for an easy answer, so that shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, people uh, always take the straight line. And say the, uh, it doesn't take long. You know, there, there is a <clears> – <throat> we have a, our Centric Journal just released a special issue on carnivore conservation. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, relating in my editorial that uh, many years ago there was a farmer in uh, in uh, England who had lost uh, 16 sheep or something like that, and uh, they were all dead in the field. And when he went to check his animals, he saw two pine martens running around, 
And uh, the following day, he came back. He had six more animals killed. And again, we saw those martens. So he concluded that the marten had killed 18 sheep. And the whole community went after the martens and destroyed them. And the species with those type of stories eventually became endangered in England. And now they're trying to bring it back. It just shows how uh, prejudices and uh, um, false assertions lead to uh, wildlife disastrous uh, situations, and this is one of them. You know? Yeah, it's it is absolutely devastating the amount of damage we can do to these animals, and we'll come to that shortly. Looking at the results a little more closely, it's not just that your hypotheses were were proved to be false. It is also interesting to see the volume of remains. Uh, I think the coyote is its a little more telling, perhaps, because the wolves yes. didn't seem that interested in cattle overall. Um, yes, uh, it was pretty. And actually, we had problems finding, you know, like those counties were in, they, they pay a good money, you know, they pay over $20,000 a year for the killing of coyotes and wolves. And uh, while we were uh, on all our grounds, because we also had a control area, which is a county without, uh, several counties without uh, bounties, we had problems finding wolf uh, cats. And when we found them, in most cases, uh, the animals were feeding on uh, snowshoeers and uh, wild ungulates. Mm -hmm. So the coyotes, you're right, tell us a better story. We had a lot more scats. The coyote is a lot more adapted to uh, uh, rural and suburban areas. So it was easier for us to find the coyotes, cats, yes. And when you look at those data, like you see the volume, um, it, it turns out that uh, we had one bad uh, period that was in summer 2016, where 18% uh, of the food items in the, in the scats were cattle. Mm -hmm. But in all other cases, it's uh, it's eight or, or five percent, you know. So it was never uh, immense. Now, there was a third hypothesis that we did there, and it was that if, when you listen to the counties, the coyotes and the wolves feed on livestock everywhere, and uh, we wanted to verify that because bounties uh, that are paid by those counties to kill. Uh, coyotes and wolves occur everywhere. And uh, we started to notice that we found coyote and wolf cats only in those fields, in those areas where there was dead cattle. Mm -hmm. And the dead cattle, after speaking with farmers and local authorities, were often animals that die, or most of the cases, animals that die from pneumonia or other ailments, and the farmers were just dropping them there. And we know that uh, those wolves and coyotes, they have a good nose. And uh, you can bring a coyote 22 kilometers away to come and check the carcass. And all the coyotes go and they all eat at the same place and they all poop at the same place. Yeah. And this is where we found hair, obviously, in the uh, cattle hair, in the in the scat of these uh, carnivores. But it's no surprise, you know, like they feed, they, they sleep, they poop all in the same area. And it, they were all associated with animals that had been just dropped in the field. 
I think this is something that those of us who do not live in a very rural area may not know is a thing, particularly when this conversation comes up. And I guess the the big general question that is this is all coming to is why are there dead cows on pastures in these areas, particularly when they know they are surrounded by wildlife? Yes, yes, it's uh, it's very frustrating. Uh, uh, we're still in a colonization time here in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and. Uh, future farmers can obtain crown land at a relatively cheap price as long as they open up the forest and uh, uh, establish their, their farming activities uh, further north. And uh, we have noticed that when farmers open up their forests, uh, the forest and they just leave their herds there and go back home and don't pay much attention, well, there is contact between wildlife it's like someone dropping a chicken on your table well mm -hmm. suddenly those animals uh, see those large animals and uh, they uh, they don't really uh, think otherwise and say well maybe it's a source of food so we we must not fool ourselves either you know if there is regular contact between coyote wolves and cattle in um, semi-forested areas you know um, eventually accidents will happen. You always get uh, an animal that is more, let's say, he pushes the envelope further than other animals, mm -hmm. and accidents will happen. It's like people, you know. The, these dogs, they are really, in many ways, they are like people, you know. We have good people. We have people who don't, who stay home, and others that cause trouble. Well, we have that also in wolves and coyotes. So accidents will happen, and when it happens, it is best to recognize who did it or if it's a pack. Sometimes a pack can learn to feed on um, um, cattle, and in this case, they have to be destroyed. The problem is that when once it happens, for whatever reason, or they see an animal feeding on a, on a, on a calf, for example, it becomes a rule that a good coyote is a dead coyote, a wolf is dead, uh, should be dead as well. And this is where people have to mature on the old subject. They, they have to recognize that when they do bounties, people shoot at random animals. You see a coyote, bang, they get 15 bucks, big deal. And there is a, a guy in one of our um, study areas there, he has dogs, and he kills himself hundreds of coyotes a year. And he gets quite a bit, a bit of money for doing that, and it's a sport for him. But by doing so, we remove the dominant animals of an area, we remove the resident coyotes, and open the area for coyotes from the outside to come in. And when it happens, the new coyotes who don't know the lamb could be hungry, could be even animals that have been pushed away by another group of coyotes. They go there and they can cause trouble. So for the sake of maintaining an equilibrium between the predators and the human activities, it is best to keep the resident intact because mm -hmm. they have a territory and they keep the... Uh, the transient animals outside their territory. And by doing so, there is a harmony that establishes itself between the farming community and the predators. And it sounds uh, like a, 
uh, almost a, a story from Walt Disney, but it is true. And we have seen that. I was working in southern Saskatchewan, and uh, I had a badger that uh, I was studying, among others. Um, and that badger had a good relationship with a coyote in the area. And uh, they were not bothering each other. Actually, sometimes they were working together to capture ground squirrels. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Saskatchewan province put a bounty on coyotes, and that coyote got killed. Within two or three weeks, we had two new coyotes that came on the land. And those coyotes were continuously harassing the badger. There was no friends there. They were young coyotes. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have any commitment to the area. So this is what we do. When we kill wolves and coyotes at random in this manner, we break down their social structure and we open our doors to problems. It's interesting that you bring that up. You've got uh, in your introduction the the simple fact that between 2010 and 2015, more than 25,000 coyotes and 1,400 wolves were killed by bounty hunters in Alberta, which is uh, a phenomenal number of canids being killed. But what yeah. is also interesting is that does not include the coyotes and wolves killed for sports, for the fur industry, for uh, any other reason. That's Those are only the ones where a bounty was collected. Uh, so Yes, uh, it's a business, you know. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is difficult to comprehend how many are being killed. And you have uh, between 2009-2010, the Saskatchewan bounty resulted in 70,000 coyotes being killed. Over one year, yeah. That is uh, an insane number of any animal being killed. Uh, let alone someone who plays such a role. I, I remember Saskatchewan driving through uh, the, the the rural areas there, and uh, some farmers will have piled six foot tall of uh, coyote skins in front of their uh, of their house, and uh, there were animals they disliked. They killed them, skinned them, put them there, or skinned them, and hoping to sell some of their pelts. God knows what, you know. So it is an insane number, and. A lot of those bounty uh, uh, bounty hunters, uh, they also use poisons. They will mm-hmm. use strychnine. They will use compound 1080. Now, if the coyote eats a good amount of strychnine right away, he might die within 15 feet of the carcass or the bait where it was. But if he takes a sublittle amount, or he takes some, but you know he doesn't get killed right away, he may walk a mile before dying and not all those animals are being uh, uh, collected by the bounty hunter and um, so so you know at the end of the day i agree with you the numbers are pretty hard to assess at this point yeah part of this uh you you have your three hypotheses that you were able to study and come up with some pretty definitive information on the question then gets asked in management implications as is often the case in wildlife research uh should bounties be maintained and i find it uh curious that and this this actually came up by in my interview with dr max foran uh in last week's episode uh, and if you've not read his book, you'd find it quite interesting. He gets heavily into the morals of wildlife management. But we've got clear research saying, no, the bounties are ineffective. We're spending a lot of money. And these two communities, these are small communities spending twenty to $25,000 uh, 
just in bounties. That doesn't include the administrative costs, uh, any of the other mm -hmm. sort of ancillary costs for something mm -hmm. that doesn't work and could, in fact, according to some research, increase the problem. How do we I, I, I don't even know how to phrase the question. It's so obvious. But <laughs> how do we say, OK, well, the science, the hard science, mm -hmm. this is not interpretive uh, naturalism. This is not moral should, would, could. This is binary. It does not work. It costs a lot of money. It could create new problems. How do we take that information and convert it to sensible policy, getting rid of these bounties? Well, this is the $1 million question because mm -hmm. we um, I have met with people from the government. Uh, we have met with people from the municipal counties. We have met field men from those counties or others that were against bounties. And yet, the bounties are still going on. So, the bottom line truly is coyotes and wolves do not vote, and farmers do. Yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, a politician during his re-election time will say, "I made sure that we will have a good control on wild predators in order to keep your business running smoothly." Now, people, a lot of them don't care for coyotes, but hey, they hear that. They prefer to hear that than someone will say from now on, there won't be any more wildlife killing in order to, to help you guys. You're on your own. Of course, they will elect the guy who comes across as the one defending their rights. So, um, and this uh, is a story that repeated itself since we have... Uh, um, governments in place in Canada. It's a, it's a story that, you know, if you were to speak with someone in the 1950s, it would be the same situation. When you speak to the people from the province of Alberta, for example, they will say, we have given the responsibility of management of wildlife on private property to the municipalities. Now, their mandate at the provincial level is to ensure the proper stewardship of our resources. It's written black and white on their mandate. But they prefer to defer their responsibility to the municipal county, and they do not want to sit down with them with those data because that, would, that could mean they have to go in court to implement their decision. So they prefer to stay their hands clear of that. When it comes to the municipal counties, well, these are local politicians. Everybody knows everybody. They do not want to risk to have to deal with a farmer who are an important farmer who could make pressure on their neighbors. They don't want to deal with a farmer that would claim that he lost a newborn calf to a coyote. So they maintain the status quo. So it is really, really hard. And when people from the public, from let's say the urban areas, uh, start to request changes, these people are being told they don't know nothing about living in the rural areas and they should put their nose in their own business. So the problem never gets solved. And like you said, for the last decade, we have had plenty of studies showing there is no reason to maintain bounties. Now, to be correct, in Canada, bounties are not really well established. It is something that was brought back by Saskatchewan and particularly by, by Alberta 
in order to control coyotes and wolves in the rural areas. And it was based on prejudices rather than on raw data. What was the attitude? I see a few times that you talked with um, landowners, uh, particularly in Mm -hmm. trying to determine, um, you know, when you found carcasses, you know, what the story was. Yes. What kind of attitudes did you find when you sort of, you know, you say, hey, we are looking for coyote and wolf scat and we found this dead animal um, that you've left here. What kind of attitude did you did you get both as the researcher, someone simply saying, I'm collecting data on this, as well as if you were given any anecdotal information on uh, livestock and their relationship with wolves and coyotes in the area? Yeah, this is really interesting. Our study was in the counties of Two Hills and St. Paul, which is in uh, central east Alberta. It's an area which has a well-established farming community, and the farms are uh, interspersed with uh, forests. So, you know, like it's a, it's a good place to live if you like both nature and agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, uh, Sadie uh, and me, uh, we were a little bit, uh, um, let's say, um, apprehensive in sitting down with the farmers and asking them what they think of those things, you know, uh, knowing that the counties maintain those bounties. Well, every time we met with a farmer, sometimes it would be along the road, the guy is walking his dog or he's checking a fence, or sometimes we will find something like a dead animal in the field, we will seek the owner and we will talk to him or, or them. Uh, every time we were well received by the people, they never showed any signs of uh, resentment. And in all cases, they said, and this is true, in all cases, they told us you should leave the, fo- the wolves and the coyotes alone. Now, we had one guy who had lost a bull, uh, a bull or a cow, I don't even remember anymore. And we went on his property, we found a dead animal, and that animal had died of natural causes. Uh, he had put two neck snares in the area, and he had captured and killed two coyotes. The coyotes had nothing to do with the death of those cow, or that cow. And he was claiming that there was uh, these were wolves who killed uh, cattle in his region. We never found one wolf's cat in the area. So uh, this is the only case where we had a guy that was adamant that wolves were bad guys. In all other cases, people were uh, not even concerned about uh, coyotes and wolves. Um, one area that was a um, cattle lease region, we spoke with the employees, and they said they were a lot more concerned with black bears because they charge us rather than, uh, than wolves. Uh, we had a farmer who told us a good story that right in the middle of his herd in the, where he keeps his, uh, it, it, right in the middle of his pasture where he keeps uh, all his herd of animals, uh, he has a coyote den and the coyote raises its pups among the cows. <laughs> he never had coyotes hurting any of his uh, livestock. And uh, he said, actually, uh, he taught his kid, you never shoot those coyotes because they will keep peace on your lap. And we received that story several times. Uh, we, we heard, I'm sorry, we, we heard that story several times that uh, there is, again, that harmony that was between the farmer and the resident coyotes, you know. Uh, 
there is no such stories with wolves because, as I told you, we didn't have a lot of wolves, and those wolves stay more in the northern forested areas. But I did meet with a local uh, rancher trapper, and he was telling me that uh, uh, he was native, and he was saying me that uh, his uh, 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 people will not interfere with wolves. You know, the wolves are there to clean the bush, and they will not uh, uh, do special actions to destroy them. So overall, our uh, contact with the public were really, really good. We and I gave a talk, I remember, in, uh, in Menton, and a farmer from Two Hills, which is over an hour away uh, drive, uh, came at the talk, and uh, he applauded uh, what we were saying and what we found, and he was in fully, full agreement. So, you know, um, sometimes you have people in counties and communities that speak louder than others, and they get their wish. But that doesn't mean the old community is behind that. Like you said, it costs a lot of money. It comes from the people's taxes. I, that is surprising to me, I will be honest, uh, in a good way, though. Uh, mm-hmm, and and yeah. that, I think, is perhaps my own, my own prejudice that I form over time, uh, reading about some of this yeah. stuff from the media perspective. It does seem, though, that based on your experience there, it's a situation, and I've seen this too in uh, communities when I've gone to meetings about coyotes. There's one or two very, very vocal people who get yes. quoted by the media, who talk to the politicians and push that agenda of lethal control or extreme management, even though most of the rest of the people don't really buy into it. Uh, so does that mean that this ongoing education, both you know, from the advocacy side where I'm at doing the podcast and the blogs and the, the other things and the science side where you are showing the evidence that these things simply aren't true or they're ineffective and that there are better ways. Is it finding a way to sort of keep pushing those two things to allow more ethical or moral decisions to be made by the public and the politicians moving forward? Well, um, you know, we, we should use what we find, our science, state-of-the-art knowledge, to develop proper education programs and go out of our way to educate the people. Um, put aside ethics and morals, you know. It's just if you want to, to bring it down to, to efforts and dollars, a farmer cannot justify to maintain bounties within his community for the little effect they have on their cattle. If we just stick to that. Uh, uh, morals and so on it's another level of concern for these people okay mm-hmm. um, education is really really important unfortunately when it comes to education with uh, the ranching industry it's maybe a blurb on the website the government may refer someone to a link on the internet yeah. but that's about it you know like I mean an example of it we try, I told you at the beginning that uh, it was difficult to get proper research funding for this project. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ended up not getting a lot of funding, not enough, uh, but uh, we're committed, CD and I, and we, we did the work. Um, we did applications to government uh, uh, organizations, you know, that are funded in parallel with, by the government. And uh, we had a, a, 
the the hypothesis that you read in the paper. We had the methodology, and we said once we have the data, we're going to sit down with the county, teach them what needs to be done, one way or the other, because we didn't know what the result would be. Yep. And uh, we will uh, hopefully uh, meet with the uh, locals and just report our findings. Well, our applications for funding was turned down because they said there was too much education in our research program. My response to them was, if we do research, but we don't forward it to the people of the real world, this research was done for, it was useless. People have to be able to have access to that type of information to make proper decisions. And, you know, we can publish in scientific journals, but the the Joe Blow, you know, who raises cows or uh, is interested with nature in his uh, backyard, doesn't necessarily access those scientific journals. So it's good for us to transfer the information from science to the public. And that's why I gave some talks in Edmonton and around, uh, around the area. But uh, it just shows you that um, we're pretty, uh, pretty archaic still in the judgments of our research project. It may have been just an excuse to throw out the, the project, you know, but the point is research must come with education and education must be done at the personal level. And this doesn't happen. Now, organizations like Wolf Awareness, I'm aware, are uh, really much involved, especially in BC with the Wolf Calling there, mm-hmm. to, um, to teach farmers and they brought in ranchers to talk to other ranchers. So, you know, people the same blood, in other words, speak to each other and they understand each other. So it's not only a scientific thing. And it, every time uh, my understanding is it's very well received, but there is very little of that. And of course, there's no funding for carrying this. So if it were not from a, a special organization who provide funding for those type of activities, uh, nothing would happen. All comes down to dollars and cents. That's uh, our beaver coexistence program. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it. It's we go into a municipality typically and train them in how to use flow devices, uh, in how to do tree wrapping, all these kinds of things that then eliminate or reduce the need for lethal control or relocation of beavers. And we'll spend a couple of days doing that and then they have the tools to do it. Uh, and yes. when we started doing this years ago under an old, uh, old director, George Clements, he would say, well, you just have to, he would tell the communities you have to do it. And then we finally got to the point where it's okay, we're going to come do it for you. And that's when we actually started seeing the real success with it is not just telling yes. them, but, and I know that's the same thing that Sadie does. I know it's the same thing Leslie Sampson at Coyote Watch Canada does with coyotes and wolves, mm-hmm. uh, is, you really do. You have to go and say, I'm willing to work with you uh, to show you how to do this. And, and, you know, it's like any other thing again, you know, like um, there is <laughs> beavers that the only way you will be able to solve the problem would be by removing the animal. But there is a distinction between a troubled animal and a troubled species. And people do not do that distinction. Not far uh, in uh, in Alberta, we have the county beaver, uh, uh, the beaver county. It's uh, uh, east, southeast of uh, Edmonton. Um, of all the names, the beaver county, this year they have a bounty on beavers. Hmm. So, um, you know, like uh, 
there were meetings. Uh, some of my colleagues indicated that it doesn't work. And so Rudin, they travel a lot among places. And uh, still, you know, they spoke to a trapper uh, who's, um, who's not necessarily uh, the best of the bunch. And uh, now we have uh, beaver control. And, uh, you know, you can shoot a beaver 20 miles or, or let's say, uh, 50 kilometers within the bush. That beaver doesn't impact at all on the road system, you know. But you get money for killing that beaver at the wrong time of year when his pelt is worth nothing, things of the sort. You know, they, they kill them in the spring. They're young, they all die of starvation. This is where we need more ATX, that's for sure, you know, and more empathy for, for life. But it doesn't happen. So the coyote wolf study we did there could apply to so many things, you know, like a few years ago, we uh, with Dwight Rodka from, uh, he's a past uh, predator manager uh, mm-hmm. in Alberta, we wrote a paper on bounties. Well, we have cases in Alberta where they will pay quite good money for you to bring the head of a cougar or a, a wolf in order to increase the human harvest of sheep in the mountains, you know, uh, like uh, improve uh, hunting, you know, and things of that sort. When actually the major problem is the loss of habitat in those cases, it's not necessarily predation, you know. So there is a bad attitude that has reinforced itself uh, over the last years in Western Canada and United States that predators are a bad thing. And there's a lot of that killing going all over the place. So fortunate. You can read the full paper at researchgate.net. It's also linked in this week's show notes and can be found at alphawildlife.ca. That's it for now, folks. I want to thank Dr. Prue for his time, as well as all the hard work that he and Sadie put into this important study. Please remember to follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Defender Radio and on Instagram at Howie Michael to find out what I'm up to and get involved with selections on interviews, questions, and more. You can also support the show directly through Patreon for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash Defender Radio. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.